This is the year like you've seen and heard out of the plan where we are praying for things that have never taken place before. We're relaunching Auditorium B next week. Hopefully around Easter we'll be relaunching our first off-site venue for adults and children and teens up in the Port Perry Uxbridge area. Like I said, we've had our largest attendance last year and also over the summer. And as we are facing all of these amazing opportunities and challenges as we begin this year, I want to stop and ask a question. Why are we going to do all of this and for who? We desperately at this moment in this season need right motives and right focus as we step out like we never have before. And by the way, the answer this morning to why we're doing all this and who this is all going to be for is summed up in two words, kingdom come. Now before we ask for this kingdom, before we cry out for this kingdom, before we begin to rest in this kingdom, before we expect this kingdom to come more and more, all of us this morning and all of you online must ask, well, what is the kingdom and whose kingdom actually is it? If you've had the chance to read your Bible at all, the Bible explicitly says that this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a fact. It's, it's real. It's now. It's, it's among. It's at the center. And yet, if you read it closely, it also seems elusive, cried out for, longed for, wanted in the promised time to come. The kingdom is here, and the scriptures say, the kingdom comes. And if you really want to see Jesus, and you really want to understand Jesus, and you want to embrace his call and, and clarify his mission and, and really get the grounding of his message, the heartbeat of why he came, all of us must understand what the kingdom of God is or what Matthew called the kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of God is not a place yet. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God is not this church or any other church around the world. The kingdom of God cannot be found in a leader or in geography. See, this is what the kingdom of God is, according to Jesus. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is any place or any space where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're a member of the kingdom because you not only welcomed Jesus as Savior, but you welcomed him as King. Now, without Jesus, the kingdom is not found. You can never separate the King's presence from his kingdom. And oh, oh, how we must want him. And oh, how we must want more of his kingdom. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There is a sound coming from heaven and shaking the earth. The chorus of voices getting louder and louder, more beautiful, more harmonic. Heaven crying out and the earth replying, Father, you are holy. Jesus, you are worthy. Holy Spirit, you are glorious. Your kingdom come, your rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. The place where our greatest longings are met for relationship, for healing, for freedom, for vision. As our voices rise in a chorus, your kingdom, Lord, is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
At one time, we had no identity as a people, but now we are your own people chosen by you. At one time, we had not received mercy, and now we have received your irresistible grace through Jesus, our Lord. So now we worship you. We long to show others your goodness because you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. The kingdom is here. Jesus, you taught us that the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that we can observe. The people won't be able to say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in our midst. God, would you give us eyes to see it? The kingdom right here within us, among us, around us. This is our call. This is our prayer. And this is why we are here in this moment. We seek first the kingdom and your righteousness. Kingdom come. Listen again to the words of Jesus the Christ. Jesus said in Luke 17, the coming of the kingdom of God is not that something that can be observed or people will say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom of God is among you. In Matthew 6, Jesus exhorted us, called us as Christians, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In Luke chapter 10, here's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near to you. When Jesus came on the scene, the Jews were expecting this kingdom we just sang about. The kingdom of God was expected, and, and the rabbis and the leaders of the day were waiting with anticipation for it to come. And yet in their mind, they had the wrong idea. They were waiting for the great military, religious, political leader to crash on onto the scene and remove the Romans and restore Israel back to its great golden age of influence and power and religious might. And yet suddenly, a man dressed in camel hair, eating locusts, comes out of the desert and starts declaring something that would shock the Jewish world, and not only the Jewish world, it would ripple into the non-Jewish world and would begin to proclaim that the one that would actually bring the kingdom of God was not what was expected, and it would not be political, and it would not be military, and it would not be religious at its core. No, no, see, the kingdom of God would be resident in an unexpected place, the human heart. Listen to what John said. Look. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I have seen and I have testified that this is God's chosen one. John was basically declaring the kingdom of God has now come. And that person, my cousin, he is the one who is bringing it. Now never forget that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God because he fully submitted to God the Father. He welcomed the reign and rule of God in everything that he did. He is the embodiment of what the kingdom looks like. But more, as John said, he is God's chosen one to bring the kingdom into our spiritually dead, broken, sinful, and lost world. The life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the deliverances of Jesus were all done so people in that age and in this age that all of us as humans would have our eyes opened to our true desperate condition and thus we would be moved to see our need for the kingdom and the messenger who brings it. The Bible pulls no punches 
about what is among us. Humanity time and time again is portrayed as poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Paul, later, after John the Baptist was long gone, as Jesus had gone into heaven, was writing to a church in Ephesus. We studied it last year. And do you remember the striking, difficult words as he described the human condition without reservation? In Ephesians 2, 1, he wrote, As for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and myself, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. As I preached last year, Paul says the trouble with humanity is that we're not just out of harmony or having a bad day or we have a spiritual cold or or we're even so bad that we're hospitalized spiritually. No, no, he says, don't you understand the desperate condition of the human plight? We are spiritually dead. We have died and we are basically in a spiritual morgue. This is not metaphor. This is condition. We are spiritually lifeless, though we are physically alert. And not only does he say that we are dead, he says we are marked by trespass and sin. We all have debts we cannot repay. We have all trespassed to places we're not allowed to go. Our lives, our thinkings regularly and continually violate the heart of God, the law of God, the intentions of God, because we have exalted ourselves and said we know better. He says, do you not know that you are spiritually dead? Do you not know that no matter who you are as a human, religious or not, we are all marked by trespass, iniquity, and sin? This is our condition. Or as one wrote, sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God right out of the picture. But he goes farther. He says, as for you, were you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, notice that, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You lived, you walked, you breathed, you stepped in something, and it is trespass. And not only that, he said, we are all part of the world. When you see that phrase, the world, it doesn't mean the globe that we're sitting and walking on at this moment. In the New Testament, that was a phrase used to connotate the fallen age we all live in. When you see the phrase, the world, used 186 times in the New Testament, continually the authors are pointing us to an age that really says to God, we don't need you. You can be a secular person saying, I don't need God, or you can be the most religious person, but by being religious and declaring you're made right with God, you're no different than the secular person, or you may be amoral. But here's the point. The world in all of its forms, whether deeply religious, secular, or spiritual in between, every one of them are the same because they leave God out of the center and put us there. Paul says, don't you know? This is the kingdom that the human human family lives in, dead, marked by trespass, marked by worldliness. And not only that, oh, whether you believe it or not, there is a king who owns this other kingdom. He is the spirit of the air. It is what the scriptures call Lucifer or the devil. And though we are not all satanic worshipers, he has us in bondage and we cannot get back to God because we have given over our ownership through Adam and Eve to him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, for the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot, they cannot, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yes, Paul cries out. Yes, John the Baptist cries out. Yes, Jesus cries out. This is our condition and this is the kingdom we are all part of. But that is not the end of the story. That dark kingdom 
is now being replaced by a newer kingdom, a stronger kingdom, by an eternal kingdom, in and through the perfect birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and prayer life of Jesus Christ at this moment. Jesus, by his words and by his teachings and by his preaching and healing and his casting out of demons, all of this was a grand introduction. It was the actual ushering in and bringing in this better kingdom, the reign and rule of God to replace what Paul just talked about. See, when we as human beings are humble enough to accept our condition, then Jesus' words and his promise and his theology of kingdom make so much more sense to us and they help us see the immense value of why Jesus has come and what he promises and the immense value of the freedom he is offering. Jesus went to his hometown after he had been baptized. The spirit of God had come upon him. God the Father said, this is my son. And he walked into Nazareth into his local church and they said, well, you're, you're an up-and-coming star. Why don't you preach this morning? See what you got. He got up and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he quoted the prophet, the cry 740 years earlier written, and he described why he had come. And this is what he said. And as you hear these words for the first time or for the thousands, remember what Paul just said we all look like without him. That is Jesus. Jesus got up and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, and this is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sat down. See, when someone meets Jesus and accepts Jesus and becomes a disciple of Jesus, the kingdom of God is found within them because they seek first the kingdom. Their sins are forgiven. They become children of God. They're no longer owned by death and they don't need to fear death. And Satan's ownership is replaced by a new, better ownership. His name is Jesus, King Jesus. Oh, kingdom come. But that's not even the whole story. Because the kingdom is even greater than what we've experienced for 2,000 years because the scriptures declare that the kingdom is not here fully yet. There's a grander sense of the kingdom that is going to be experienced by all of those who say yes to Jesus. See, as one scholar said, the kingdom is both presence and promise. It is within and beyond history. One day at the end of time, Jesus is going to come again. All of creation will fully be under his rule. And the kingdom of God, the reign and rule, the space and place of God's reign will be found everywhere in all of creation. Can you imagine it? This is how St. John recorded this in his 90th year. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he dwells with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Anyone cried this week? Anyone experienced death this week? Anyone mourning this week? 
Anyone experiencing pain this week? Well, God says, though my kingdom is found in your heart now, oh, take hope, church, because the kingdom is coming in the greater sense, and all this will be washed away forever and ever. Amen. It's what one person cried out, is there no answer to the ills of the earth? And John's vision gives us the grand response to that question. The Lamb of God who was born, the Lamb of God that John pointed to who takes away the sins of the world, he has conquered. God has come and will come. His kingdom is among us at this moment, but his kingdom is fully coming. The now is only the beginning of the not yet. Oh God, kingdom come. And so, as we begin this ministry year, let us resolve the one question that will form what happens as we travel together as a family. How much do you? How much do we really want this kingdom to grow? If it is what it really is, how much do you want the kingdom of Jesus in your life, in your family, in this church, in this region, how much do we want this growing kingdom to really come among us even more? Many of us sitting in here this morning and online, we are members of the kingdom, but have we forgotten? Has the great value and lasting, incalculable value of the kingdom lost its luster? Have we become distracted? See, hear this this morning as we step out. The more we really understand the kingdom of God, the more we want the kingdom of God, the more we seek first his kingdom, that's God's loving, kingly rule in our lives, the more we will so quickly and loosely give away our time and our money and our life and our gifts and even our dreams because we will want to see this thing grow because it is more valuable than anything else. So the question facing us as we step out this year is this. The kingdom is among us. The kingdom is growing globally in the hearts of millions. And yet will this phrase here and here and all over what we have, will it move from phrase to reality? It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that since Jesus claimed he brought the kingdom, that he spent so much time expressing what it was and how valuable it was. We've got a Bible this morning. Would you turn to Matthew 13 for a moment? In Matthew 13, Jesus begins to describe this thing we have just sung about, watched, and longed for. In Matthew 13, verse 1, it said, That same day Jesus went out of the house, and he sat by the lake. Such large crowds were gathering around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it. While all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus walks out of this home. Hundreds, probably thousands show up. Jesus is so sort of crushed by the crowds. Tiff has nothing on Jesus. Just want to say that. They push him so much. He's sitting at the shore of Galilee that he gets in a boat. and He begins to teach. Now, it says there are large crowds. But if you read Matthew, something is about to happen. See, the large crowd stopped being large after this moment. Because as Jesus truly begins to outline what the kingdom actually is, what the cost of the kingdom is, what the great benefit of the kingdom is, the crowd begins to dwindle. But at this moment, the large crowds are present. And Jesus begins to talk to a mixed crowd, just like this morning. 
That crowd is just like this crowd, right? Full of deeply committed people, the bored people, the distracted, the skeptic, you who are dragged here who don't even want to be in church, and everything in between. That crowd, this crowd, exactly the same. Look down at verse 44. Jesus begins to describe the kingdom, and here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like a treasure hidden in a field. This is so unbelievably insightful for us this morning. The kingdom of heaven is like something you would not find by walking through an open field. You would walk along. You would, you would, you would miss it. It's like a hidden treasure. And most people walk right over it, buy it, and miss what's underneath their feet. Now, Jesus uses an everyday image from his culture of a day laborer. There were no unions, no security back then. You worked for a day, you were paid for the day, and that was that. There's a man who's working on another person's field. He doesn't know there's a treasure, nor does the person who owns the field know there's a treasure. And it says that as he is working or tilling the field, he, he discovers it. Now, this is not a parable about ethics or employer-employee, like just breathe. That's not what this is about. This is just a point. So this day laborer is working and finds an unbelievable treasure in the ground. Now, this was a common practice before banking, before ground-penetrating radar, before metal detectors, detectors, people would bury their treasure because of invasion or any other reason. This would be like Jesus coming up to us and saying, you know, when you were cleaning out the trash downtown Toronto, you found a lottery ticket worth $100 million, and it actually was real. So Jesus says, so that happened. The crowd is intrigued. I'm sure the crowd is full of day laborers going, oh, I wish, <laughs> When a man found it, he hid it again. And, and, and then in his, notice this word, joy. Can we all say that together? What is it? Joy. That was weak. Let's try that again. In his what? Joy. In his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought the field. He sold everything. Everything. Why? Because what was in that field was worth more. Now notice, the selling of the land wasn't duty, hardship, anger. He wasn't coerced, forced. It wasn't an obligation. He did this out of great joy. Why? Because he knew that what was buried in that field was better than anything he owned at this moment. As one wrote, salvation in the righteousness of the kingdom is far greater a treasure than all the world has to offer. And it is the source of greatest joy. When we recognize fully the value of life in the presence of Jesus now and eternal life to come, all the sacrifices we make cannot compare to the joy of experiencing its present reality. Jesus looks at the crowd and basically says to them this, if you want that, if you want the kingdom to come, it's like a buried treasure. And when you find it, it's worth more than anything else you've got but you're going to have to give everything up to get it. Do you want it? Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Jesus says, let me give you another story. You all know that there's highly trained experts, right, who spend their lives trying to discover pearls. The crowd goes, yes, it, my, my cousin Isaac does that all the time. Okay, sure, yeah, okay. As he's sitting there, he begins to describe it this way. I don't know a lot about pearls, but I did some research this week. There's a huge difference, of course, between now and then, and here it is. We can make synthetic pearls. They couldn't. It was Mother Nature or nothing. I found out this week that freshwater pearls take between one and six years to form, and saltwater pearls, you ready, take five to 20 years to form. Did you know that? They're the most valuable thing because they are made by themselves. And as one person said, you need to understand, these wild pearls are unbelievably rare. 
Because first of all, you have to collect hundreds of pearl oysters and kill pearl mussels and, and open them to maybe find just one. Hundreds of things need to die maybe to find one. And there's no guarantees. That's why pearls fetch such extraordinary prices then and now. Well, Jesus says when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. He becomes poor to become rich. Now, don't, again, misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Some of you are very logical. Your engineer is going, well, Jesus, I'm sorry. He sold everything. Now he's got a pearl. How he's going to eat? I don't understand. Okay, no, no. You're missing the point. It's about the great value of this one pearl compared to all the other pearls and all other things. There is value, there is beauty, there is worth. This pearl, he is saying, is better than anything else. And notice that Jesus points not to five pearls, 12 pearls, three pearls, two pearls. He says there is one pearl, not many, and it is better. It eclipses, it outshines everything else. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God and he at the center, his relationship is better and more valuable than any other relationship. He's saying that every other worldview, all other competing ideologies, all other forms of religion, all other views are nothing compared to this rare fine pearl. When you experience it, what else do you need? Jesus is saying, what else do you need? What we do with the kingdom, Jesus is about to say, spills into eternity. See, if you want the kingdom, you really want the king. Can I say that again? If you really want the kingdom, you really want the king. But if you don't want the kingdom, you'll never want the king. And the decision we make on this side of life spills over into forever. Jesus has said that the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, is worth more and is better than all the others. But then Jesus' deep, deep sense of urgency coming out, now moving it to the forefront, sitting in that boat, begins to talk about how high the stakes are if we say yes or no, whether we agree or not. Now remember, he's sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He's surrounded by thousands of people, but he's in a fishing boat. The smell of fish is all around him. The nets are drawing all through those crowds. And Jesus, the brilliant teacher, looks around and says, let me help you all understand what the kingdom really is. Let me actually use the items that you're literally sitting in and I'm sitting in right now. He says, you know there's 20 species of fish we fish in this lake all the time, right? The crowd would be like, yeah. He said, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. Like that net right there, he'd be saying. It was let down to the lake and caught all signs of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets and they threw away the bad. Two-thirds of the crowd's probably going, I did that this morning. He says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw and throw them into a blazing furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end, all of us will face God, Jesus says from the boat, what is called the final judgment, and there are only two fish, two groups of people. And the parable literally reads in Greek that the angels will come from among the fish and take out the wicked, which implies the separation never happens till the end. But here's Jesus' point about the kingdom. For those who have found the treasure and had great joy in giving all up, and for those who said yes to the kingdom and acknowledged that it was the greatest and the, and the most rare fine pearl that anyone could ever discover worth more than anything, these are the people that he knows. One person wrote, 
so prophetically so long ago, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who God says, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. If you want the kingdom of God, if you want this hidden treasure, this fine pearl, if you want the reign and rule of God, the forgiveness of sins, relationship, hope in the now, resurrection later, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, then you must always meet its king. See, at the heart of the kingdom of God is Jesus. Remember what I preached last week out of Romans 10.9? How do you meet this God? And Paul wrote it this way. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the gospel. How do you enter the kingdom? How do you become a member of the kingdom? By being kind, being nice, being religious, being secular, spiritual, religious? No, you meet the king and he lets you into his kingdom. And how do you meet him? It says you must confess, you must believe, not just statement. You must actually believe that Jesus is, say it loud, what? Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord means, A, we confess him theologically correct. He is God. He's not just prophet, priest, king. He's not just a human prophet or a human priest or king. He is God in flesh. And not only that, it is a willing declaration. I want the reign and rule of God in my life. He is king. That is, he is Lord. He is God. He is master. And oh, how good he is. I want him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God the Father raised him from the dead, you'll enter the kingdom. You will be restored. You will be saved. You will be saved. Jesus says in verse 51, have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. Yes. Do you see the value of the kingdom? If you want the kingdom, you really want the king, and the king is Jesus himself, King Jesus. This is why our theme this year and our cry this year is for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God to come in greater measure, because if that's why Jesus came in the first place, that's what we need to be about too. Would you not agree? For in the kingdom, all the longings of the human heart are met. In the kingdom, relationship with God is given again. In the kingdom, are not yet is covered In the kingdom, our chaos in the now is brought into order. And we are declaring that we want a loving, humble, gentle, kind, life-giving, life-demanding kingdom to grow and grow and grow and grow as we wait for its fullest expression to come. See, that is why, as we are praying for genuine renewal, And God keeps showing up. I am so thankful he's listening to our prayers. Jesus keeps knocking at so many people's hearts and introducing himself and reintroducing himself. And more and more of us are opening the door and saying, yes, I want to eat with you. As we're praying for real renewal, as we're asking for God's spirit to sweep across our church from every baby up to every senior and everyone in between, as we're asking for revival, a season of God's palpable presence that will not be removed until he sovereignly decides so, and as we're pleading some of us for God to show up in Durham in a way that has never happened, where 10 and then hundreds and then thousands of people who are not looking for him suddenly meet Jesus and accept him as Savior and Lord, this is why this cry must must be the center of what we do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in me, on earth in my family, on earth in this church, on earth in the Durham region, on earth in Toronto, as it already is in heaven. The kingdom, Jesus says to us this morning, is this. It is worth giving up everything for 
The kingdom is better than any other thing, person, relationship, worldview, religious item, anything you can buy, marry, participate, or do. It's better, it's better, it's better. Because the one at the center of the reign and rule of God is Jesus, is Jesus. And what we do with him in the kingdom now determines what happens then. We're starting our year boldly asking God to do things we've never seen. We are coming and starting our year with great joy and anticipation for his kingdom to grow and, and for more to meet him. But the reason why I wanted to preach this message is simple, because all of us have to have a common script of what we are praying for, what we're requesting, what we're inviting others into. The kingdom of God, let me remind you, is the reign and rule of God in any place or space. Let me add something done through the work of Jesus. What we are asking for in this phrase, in all these banners, is that God's loving, joyful kingdom would grow in a way we have never seen across all of us. This is what we are requesting from heaven. A question for us who are Christians, are you convinced of its worth? Are you convinced of its worth? If you are convinced of its worth, it will move us. If we are not convinced of its worth, we will not be moved. And like I've preached before, you will know that the kingdom of God is growing and we lovingly, like that guy selling everything with great joy, we will know the kingdom is growing in us when we lovingly, full of joy, begin to invite Jesus deeply in how we use our money and how we deal with sexuality and how we deal with relationships and how we deal with power. We will know that this prayer that we are praying is being answered when relationships change. Kingdom come. We will know that God is actually changing our middle class values when those things are not bigger anymore than Jesus himself and his things. Are you convinced of its worth? Because that is what we are asking for this year. Let me end with this. I hope many of us are in this place excited and wanting many more people to enter into the kingdom of God. I hope many more of us want our friends and our family and strangers to find this hidden treasure, to find this great pearl, to be counted, by right, counted as righteous through grace alone, through mercy alone, through Jesus' work alone. So let me end with this one verse today, please. And here it is. May this verse not only be on our lips, May our, this verse not only be in our hearts. May this verse not only be something we sing. May this be true. May this be true. Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount and he said, if you are members of the kingdom, this is what will happen among you. He says, ready? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. In an age of absorption and self-promotion, in an age in a time of fear, in an age of darkness where we are watching things on television we thought we'd never see in our lifetime, in an age where we are unsure, let me just say this as we begin this year. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and seek first the king at that kingdom and seek first his righteousness. Pray that Lord's Prayer sincerely. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray the prayer that we've been uttering since 2010. Lord, do anything in my life for your glory, for my freedom, so the world we see Jesus clearly. Ask God's kingdom to come because Jesus has already declared that it is among us and has declared it's coming fully later. So would you stand with me and would, would you pray with me this prayer of dedication for our year? And then this song that has been written by our own worship leaders, would we together sing this genuinely to Jesus together? Lord, that you would even introduce yourself to us is magnificent. But at this moment, as we begin this year with great joy and great anticipation for all that we're about to do, we want to stop and say, Lord, we want to check our motives. It's for you. The plan for you, programs for you, multiple venues for you, for you, not for us. But deeper, deeper, deeper than that, hear our prayer of your people in this place. Jesus, show us the great value because you are the hidden treasure. Open our eyes, Jesus, to see you more than we've ever seen you in our walk because you are the great pearl. Holy Spirit, open our eyes so we see the value of Jesus and the value of his kingdom. Help us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Please help us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because in the kingdom of God, we find freedom. And in the kingdom of God, people find God again. Oh Lord, our last request, genuine Oh God, send your kingdom in greater measure so our neighbors and our friends and strangers will say, truly, 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 there is a God among those people who is love. Oh Jesus, in this generation, in this dark time, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.